Well, last week, the, the gospel lesson was the first shall be last and the last first, so we flip, flip the lessons this week just to have a late illustration of, of, of Jesus' words, I think, so that was, that was fun. Thank you. Uh, I want to talk today about how we can pay our taxes with joy, and... Uh, <laughs> Because I think that is the thrust of, of Jesus' message today. Uh, one way to help sort of frame it, I think, is to go to the letter of Paul, uh, to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 28. And these are familiar words that Paul says, and I want to read them to you. Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Uh, these words are often brought out at the time of trial or suffering uh, for a Christian, pressed into service during tragedy and crisis. And rightly so, for a believing Christian, these words bring a great deal of comfort because they tell us that our grief has a purpose. And I preached on that several months ago. But I think it begs the question, could all things really mean all things? And today's gospel lesson, about paying taxes no less, says, yes, all things really does mean all things. All things do work for the purpose of God. But the question is whether they work for good, right? Here we're talking about paying tribute to your oppressor. Caesar was an oppressive overlord. The Roman taxation system was oppressive and full of graft. And we find out that even paying taxes in that system can be the fulfillment of God's will, and therefore for the good, for those who believe. But I think we need to unpack that, and we need to see what Jesus was doing in this episode. Jesus says to them, to the Pharisees, whose likeness and inscription is this? Uh, The Pharisees have set a trap for Jesus to, to entangle him in his words, and specifically what they would like to do is goad him into uttering something seditious. Uh, the, the groundwork was laid for, for rebellion. Uh, Judea at this time was a tinderbox, and all anyone needed to do was strike a match, and that routinely, in fact, happened. So it was a garrison state, and Roman, garrison, Roman legions were stationed there to put down rebellion at a moment's notice. So to get rid of Jesus, it was a, a clever idea to get him to say something seditious. He then asks them to show them the coin that they used to pay tribute to Caesar. Now, you might have expected him to simply reach into his pocket and pull out the coin and say, coin and say see, here, whose image and inscription is this? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't reach into his own pocket. Instead, he asks them, and they, they fall for it. They take the bait. They reach into their own pocket, pull it out, and show, and, and show him uh, the coin. And what he's showing here is that they've accepted Caesar's economic arrangement. They've reached into their own pockets, and they're pulling out Caesar's money which is the money they use to pay tribute, which is a symbol of their subjection, of their servitude, of their slavery. It's as, they might as well have just shown their, 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 their shackles at that point. Whose likeness and inscription is this, Jesus asks. And they reply, Caesar's. But that's only the answer to the first question, whose likeness. They, they omit the second part because the, the second part of the answer would convict them of the sin of blasphemy and idolatry. They don't even want to utter the words that are written on the coin. Now, in our coins, we see things like e pluribus unum, out of many one, or in God we trust. I don't think those are blasphemous, right? But in the uh, coin, on the coin that was used to pay the tribute, the inscription read, Emperor Tiberius, august son of the august God. So that very coin 
was an idol. That very coin was an image of a false god. And here these faithful Pharisees, these Jews of Jews, are carrying around an idol in their pocket because they know full well there is no god but their God, but Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Israel's complicity here with idolatry is laid bare. They carry these these, these idols on their person. So Jesus has avoided their trap and, in in, in fact, entangled his opponents when, when they meant to entangle him. Then Jesus says something remarkable. He says, render to Caesars the things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God's to which we're told that his opponents marveled. And they marvel, I think, because on the surface, this is a very practical, even, I would say, pharisaical answer that that Jesus gave. And I I wonder if the Pharisees weren't marveling to themselves, thinking, I wish we had thought of that. uh, So what makes Jesus' answer here so clever and so, uh, so pharisaical? Because what he seems to be saying, and many Christians, I think, have taken him to mean this, is that one's faith can be neatly separated from the rest of one's life. You can, otherwise, in other words, compartmentalize. It would, it's as if he was saying it's perfectly fine to carry around idolatrous coins in your pocket and pay tribute to your overlord with them. Another way we might put that is it's perfectly fine to sin on Saturday night and sing hymns in church on Sunday morning. It's as if sin and righteousness are two separate things, and you pay righteousness to God and you pay sin to, well, your own nature or to to your false gods. And to avoid that kind of bifurcation, that that hypocrisy, some some Christians have reduced Jesus' words to what we might call pietism. And in its most extreme form, it results in men and women walling themselves off from the world to go live in monasteries or fleeing to the desert to live solitary lives because they don't want to pay that other coin. They don't want to pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. So they try to cut Caesar out of their life entirely and only have a life devoted to God. Now, I'm not knocking that vocation for some Christian men and women, but if you're going to use this story as a justification for it, you can't find that in this passage. When Je- what, in fact, what Jesus is saying is that by rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, you are rendering to God what is God's, because everything comes from God. In other words, there's really no separation of purpose or ends. Uh, the Greek word here would be telos, uh, between church and state. They're both ordered towards the same purpose, which is God's purpose. There's no separation of purpose between earth and hev- heaven. It's not okay to sin on earth and, and, and think inspiring thoughts about heaven. Heaven and earth work together for the same purpose, which is to fulfill God's will. There's no separation between piety, the faithfulness of a Christian, and politics, because both orders need to work together for the glory and purpose of God. That is why Paul can say we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And so the meaning here is that the Christian is to take an active role in both realms. And the Christian is to be especially concerned with bringing the lower orders, which would be the state or the earthly or the natural order, and even the political order, into conformity with the higher order, which is God's law, which is why Jesus commands us to fulfill and go and do just that in Matthew 28. Verses 19 and 20, the Great Commission, Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here's the the clincher here, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
Now, that doesn't just refer to the parables and the words of Jesus in red, because as the incarnate word of God, everything that Jesus has commanded us is the entire word of God, the Bible. So we can't, we can't pick and choose here. In carrying the image of Tiberius, son of the august God, the Jews were once again acknowledging a foreign God. And if you know your Old Testament, that's the whole sad story of the Old Testament. By paying tribute with those same coins, they were serving that God. By thus answering the Pharisees' challenge, Jesus not only exposes them as idolaters and, and, and collaborators, but reminds them of why they are idolaters and collaborators. He reminds them of the purpose, which is to say God's purpose in their subjugation. And I preached on that two weeks ago with the parable of the tenants, where Jesus says in Matthew 21, verse 43, to this, almost the same crowd, he says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. In today's story about the two coins, Jesus reminds the Pharisees that the kingdom of God has, in fact, been taken away from them. At the root of Israel's religion, at the heart of its sacrifices in the temple, was the belief that all things belong to God. And two, ver two verses from the Psalms will suffice to make this point. Psalm 24, verse 1, tells us that all the earth and every living creature belongs to God. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 74, verse 16, tells us that even time, even time itself belongs to God as well. It says, yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. If God has ordained all of that, then God has ordained that paying taxes to Caesar, even though it is the symbol and the sign of one's subjection to him, is still a right and proper way to render to God what belongs to God. So how do we apply the lesson of the two coins to our lives? Well, the first application is to understand that all things work together to serve God's purpose. That's the meaning of providence. Everything works to serve God's purpose. There's not, not an inch of creation or a moment in time that isn't ordained by God to serve his purpose. But all things only work together for good to those who believe in Jesus Christ. So what that means is you're going to render to God what is God's, even if it's because the internal revenue service forces you to. But this will not necessarily be for the good if your faith is not in Jesus Christ. The second application is to understand the God-ordained purpose of the tithe. Had Israel been faithful in paying tribute to God alone, they would not have been forced to pay tribute to Caesar. God only asks for 10% and promises to multiply, multiply its effect in building up the church. And we read this morning in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 3, God says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places. In other words, X marks the spot. I'm going to tell you where the buried treasure is, right? That you may know that it is I, the Lord. This is the promise of God to his people if they are faithful. The state, on the other hand, will tax you far in excess of 10% and give you much less than God wants you to have. And I think the reason for this is because, let's be honest, it's much easier to walk by sight than it is to walk by faith. And the state, through its taxes, whether it's imperial Rome, lets us, or, or more modern-day America, will allow us to walk 
by sight and not by faith. See what you get for your taxes? You get aqueducts and and roads and the protection of the Roman garrison. And see what you get for your taxes today. Much the same thing, right? Your Social Security, your Medicare, your food stamps. All of these things we can see, we can experience them. They're tangible and they benefit us, right? I mean, the food, the belly needs to be full at night, right? And we need a place to sleep. But if we put our faith in the state because we can see what it gives us, and we pay our tribute and taxes thus, then we're a bit like Esau who trades his birthright in eternity for a pot of lentils now. God asks us to put our faith in him and to trust in him to fulfill our needs to give him the first of all we get, trusting more is still to come. And I think this is what Jesus means when he says, are, you, are not two sparrow, sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows." It is the ability to walk by faith and not by sight that makes the final application of this passage clear. When Jesus says, give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, he's including himself. In the moment that he utters these words, Jesus himself is subject and is a subject of Caesar's. And Caesar will soon require his death. Caesar demands Jesus' life, which Jesus willingly surrenders to Caesar because he knows that life does not belong to Caesar. Life belongs to God. And God will not let his Holy One see the rot and stench of the grave. And so Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day. All things, even the blood tribute paid to Caesar, work for the good of those who love God. Amen.